Yes, as as, uh, Pastor Dan mentioned, we're not going to be in the book of Revelation this morning due to having considerable amount of our church family missing over the last uh, couple of weeks in and out, and it just, uh, we don't want to rob the students of their labors and conclude the book without many here, so we want to take a moment uh, and and pause from the book of Revelation uh, together. Uh, Also, there is a little bit of a focus um, on kind of as your own heart kind of addresses the year in review or kind of looking toward a year coming up as you're heading into a new season. There is, in fact, a a, a interesting post that was online that I didn't have time to print out, but I did want to share with you. In light of the year in review, there is this post on the numbers And many of you are probably well aware of these numbers, but perhaps they are a bit surprising and they will lead into our text this morning. I just got this last night and I wish to share it with you just briefly by way of introduction. Consider your life in light of these statistics. And I don't know where each of us line up within them, but certainly we are a part of this. Average credit card debt in the year in review of 2012 The average credit card debt per U.S. household is $15,418. Average mortgage debt per U.S. household, $149,782. Average student loan debt per student graduating coming out of the year 2012 is $34,703. Some of us in here are still accumulating, so that number will keep rising. Median household income, $50,000. Number of Americans with income below the official poverty rate. Number of Americans with income below the official poverty rate, 46 Point two million. Number of abortions in America. One point two million. One point two million. Number of adoptions in America. 136,000. Number of states that allowed physician-assisted suicide. Three. Number of states that have legalized same-sex marriage. Nine. Number of Christians that were persecuted for their faith around the world. 200 million. This is just a brief introduction that struck me last night as I was reading it. To set the context for the life in which you find yourself living. This is not surprising. There was a book, uh, I forget the title of the book, just to be a little bit more informal with you this morning as is perhaps fitting given our crowd size. But there was a book uh, this week that uh, my father-in-law had, uh, Pastor Dan also, he read it this week. The title of the book was 
Escape from Camp 14. I don't know if some of you have read that, but it's about a young man who escaped just recently uh, from North Korean uh, prison camps. Talking about absolute devastation of people. Absolute devastation. We have some sense of that. As I was speaking with my father-in-law about uh, cruelty in the earth and thinking about abortion, uh, North Korea, some of the unsettled uh, climates within various countries in the world, I was speaking to him about our church family going through the book of Revelation. As hard as I try to get my Bible to stay up there, it's just not going to do it. Speaking to him about the sense of, of human evil, suffering, and hurt in the world as he was reading this book about this escape from North Korea. I said it was eye-opening to the thought of human evil in the world presently right now. I'm reading for you statistics about states that now promote assisted suicide. 1.2 million children were murdered this year. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation. We should be now maturing into a sense of understanding in relationship to the difficult context within which we find ourselves. Since the resurrection, you remember in your timeline of thinking about the book of Revelation, and this is not a sermon on Revelation, but you recall... By the time you hit Revelation 5 and you see the resurrection of the Lord, where the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted, honored, and loved. Sang over and praised by myriads of myriads. People from all around the world gathering around the throne to exalt the Lord Jesus. You watch from that point of resurrection, chapter 5, and you see chapter 6. The release of the sealed judgments. The burden with which... The earth is experiencing tremendous travail, trial, and difficulty. The beast and his work in the world. The dragon and his promotion of murder. And you see it everywhere in the earth now. You see it in the statistics that are revealing in financial difficulty. False teaching that is prevalent everywhere from pulpits all over the world. As Matt spoke, even just another word, informally, Matt, who spoke last week about going to Africa and to do teaching there, because he's saying the gospel is at work in Africa, but it tends to be an inch deep and a mile wide, a perfect place for false teaching to come in and promote itself. And before you know it, doctrine is lost, people are led down pathways of deceit, and the church continues to suffer. This is the context within which we find ourselves. There was one more stat that I didn't read for you. Predictions in 2012 about the apocalypse that came true. Zero. That affirms our interpretation of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? I think we're on to something. Since the resurrection, the earth is groaning deeper and deeper as it awaits the return. Life context continues to wax worse and worse, more and more burdensome. More and more false teaching, more and more murder, more and more death, 
more and more difficulty. Paul said it this way, as I read for you just to introduce, Paul says it this way, Timothy, understand this. Please have this as a principle of operation. Recognize in your ministry and to those you preach and teach and exhort. Recognize this, Timothy, that in the last days, and you recall this last days is from point of resurrection onward, there will come times of great difficulty. People will grow this way. They will grow to be lovers of self, lovers of money. They will become so proud, arrogant, and abusive. They are disobedient to their parents as the children grow. They will grow in ungratefulness. I was talking with a couple of individuals before we began the service, speaking about our vacation time and how it was. And that is always on the eye of the parents, is it not? Someone's always opening a gift and getting spanked or getting their time out, however it is you're disciplining, because they're growing in a spirit of ungratefulness. Where is the next one? Uh, Grandma and grandpa will get more. No, I already opened this. I think that's been going on since the recognition of gift-giving, ungratefulness. They will continue to grow unholy in their lives. It will be a society that will appear heartless, unappeasable. You just can't satisfy. You you, You cannot find common ground. It's unappeasable. They will be slanderous with one another. They will live without self-control. They will be brutal to one another. They will not love good. They will be treacherous, reckless, swollen up with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have the appearance of godliness, and we spoke about that with the work of the false prophet who speaks a word, yet as you discern his content, you realize it is Christless. They will appear to have godliness, but they will indeed deny its transforming power. But yet there is a word here for us, as it is in each generation. I want to speak of this this morning a little bit. That while it is true, as I read for you the statistics, and we hear Paul to Timothy, there is something that's always been occurring, and each generation likes to kind of, kind of carve out their niche in time. And realize that a time in which they live is altogether unique. And so much harder than when my parents lived. And it's going to be so much harder when our children will live. And every generation is always claiming some sense of it's harder. The burden to bear with that. Is that what comes out of that is this sense that. The rules and regulations, the teaching and the insight that might have worked for my parents will not work for me. I live in a difficult time. My my parents, you know, I mean, I can look at their lives and they used to be able to ride their bike wherever they wanted without fearing someone jumping out of a van and grabbing them. They, They lived in a simpler time. Then there's us. And then the teenagers decide, like, whatever was taboo for my parents doesn't work for me. I'm different. Our time is different. I am, our generation is unique. All rules, regulations, insights do not apply. So it is each generation gets, as Paul would say, more and more boastful, more and more arrogant, more and more built on conceit, harder and harder to instruct. 
And we can oftentimes think of that in our own life situation that rules just don't apply to me because my time in which I live is so unique. I need a new word from the pulpit. I need a new text to give me insight. I need to hear a new gospel. Because I live in a unique time. I face unique challenges. But listen from the word of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he writes to you this morning from the text of Holy Scripture, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. In other words, calm down on your uniqueness. Even with the launch of the digital age, whoa, hey. It still comes back to the core of the condition of man. No matter how unique, it isn't altogether unique. Thus eliminating the same instruction that your parents needed. The same instruction that you need. And the same instruction is going to be that which your children will need. The gospel. That is, when Paul wrote that text that perhaps you've quoted to yourself, you've memorized yourself, you've quoted to your children, or your parents have quoted to you. You realize if you step back within that text, he's writing it to a church in light of teaching them the Old Testament. Paul is speaking to them. No temptation has overcome you in the first century church. Nothing has overcome you that is not common to man. Look way back to the garden and on. Nothing is altogether unique to you and your needs That is not common to all men. So then from the Old Testament text of Holy Scripture to the first century church, as Paul would say, nothing is is unique to you that isn't for your instruction since the beginning of human history. And to the 21st century church, he sang the same to us as he did to the first century church. Nothing is so unique to you that God's word is somehow outdated or not insightful. Enough. Nothing in your life is so unique. I want to encourage your heart this morning with a word that, in light of Paul saying that we share in commonality with one another and with the history of the church through the text of Holy Scripture, to find indeed that there is nothing unique even back to Genesis 5. If you turn with me this morning to deal with a difficult context of life through looking and exploring just a few brief moments together through Genesis 5. This was written, Paul says, to the church at Corinth, as I said to you, it is written as an example for us. This is doing away with this attitude that we often say once again, I am unique. I need unique instruction. Paul is saying to you, no. All of the text of Holy Scripture is written as an example for all of us. Because regardless of the context that you're in, everyone has lived in a difficult time. Ever since the garden sanctuary was broken, everyone has lived in difficult times. 
in the Old Testament or anywhere from the old within the new is a word as an example written for you. And you cannot say, no, I am a child of uniqueness. That just does not exist. If you look with me, if you're there in Genesis 5, I want to highlight one particular element of this, what you are now looking at and wondering what I am about to say because we're staring at a genealogy. And you're like, what's going on with the list of names that's insightful for my time as an example? Genealogies, I would share with you a word as you look in the New Testament. Indeed, even throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis, comes to mind. Genealogies are tremendous truth revealers. And certainly we have that here this morning. Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5 in this genealogy, I want to draw your attention, read 21 through 24, and make a few brief comments together. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, And had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. In case you forgot. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. For God took him. I just want to read briefly, I guess now that I think of it, 25 through 27, just to follow in the context of the genealogy when Methuselah had lived 187 years he fathered Lamech Methuselah lived after he had fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died Paul said to you to me this morning this is written as an example for us. How is the genealogy here in chapter 5 serving me this morning in my life in light of the statistics you read, in light of the context within which we recognize and receive is a difficult context? How is this genealogy right here about Enoch a word of an example and instruction for me this morning? Well, I would point to you the first portion of how we know Moses Intended this genealogy to be written for an example to us. Is that the genealogy here is nearly identical to the genealogy where it will repeat in chapter 11. So you're saying, okay, great. So far we're working on a genealogy this morning. I'm realizing that there is one in chapter 5 and now I've been instructed that I'm about to receive an example from genealogy 5 because it reappears in chapter 11. Okay, great. So I got, instead of one list of names, I got two. What's the purpose of the example for me between the lists. And it is this insightful little phrase in chapter 5 that distinguishes the genealogy from chapter 11. It is this, and he died. This is the word of instruction which appears in chapter 5 at the end of every one of the patriarchal names. And he died. 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 You do not have that repeated in chapter 11. The purpose for the genealogies are different. The instruction to be gleaned from them is different. If you look at chapter 5, look in the end, if you're there in chapter 5, at the end of verse 4. And he died. At the end of verse 8, 
and he died. At the end of verse 11, and he died. Same with 14, and he died. 15, or excuse me, 17, and he died. At the end of 20, and he died. But not Enoch. So what is the point here? Why does he explicitly state again and again with every one of the patriarchal names in chapter 5 that they died, but he doesn't do so in chapter 11? It's because he's teaching each of us an example about life. Enoch stands out in contrast to those who are dying around him. The highlight of the genealogical significance about Enoch is that he lived. And it's highlighted because all around him, everybody's dying. But not so with Enoch. This is what's to be gained out of the genealogy of five, not eleven. Eleven continues with the genealogical listing, but five is instructing on the contrast between death and life. And he died, 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 and Enoch lived, and then after him, they died, and they died. That is the author, who is Moses, purposefully highlights through the structure of the genealogy the death of every patriarch in order to highlight the exceptional case of Enoch. Enoch is exceptional in the midst of all the dying. To the student of Holy Scripture, you this morning, you're gathering and you're hearing a word on a genealogy. And now as a student, you've been asking questions and you find out, what is the exception about Enoch? I'm finding out that Enoch found life in the midst of difficulty. Do you live in a difficult time? Do you? Sure you do. Through the book of Revelation, are you learning, as I introduced to you, the difficult age in which you live and what's somewhat behind this difficult age as it continues to murder 200 million Christians or persecute 200 million Christians now in 2012? 1.2 million abortions as it's somehow legislated that we can murder children. Is this a difficult time? Yes. We have a small little symptom that's about to affect everybody, perhaps. I don't know. You know how the media is. It's hysterical. They love to make you hysterical because that's good business and it brings you back to watch tomorrow night just in case they can calm you from your hysteria. Everybody loves a good bad news story. So it is with this looming fiscal cliff Or is it a fiscal ditch? Or is it a fiscal slope? Well, that's not going to work. Is it some sort of legislative problem? No, 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 no. Make it way more treacherous in the announcement. That's good business. It's a cliff and we're all going to go over it. Now you're nervous, aren't you? No doubt, though, the simplicity is we do indeed live in a complex and difficult time. Oh, that's it then. The word of God can't speak. So did Enoch. So did Enoch. And Paul is telling the church at Corinth, and you this morning, this is written as an example for us. 
Consider the difficulty within which Enoch lived. It's only a page away. Turn back to chapter 3 if you notice the context within which Enoch himself lived, beginning in chapter 3 with verse 17. No, 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 we're, we're generation X, or we're generation Y, or we're generation Z squared, whatever we want to label ourselves as being unique, and unlike the previous. There's some things fundamentally that have not changed, nor will they ever change until the Lord returns. Look at Enoch's difficult situation. It just befell us here in the text of Scripture by the hand of Moses, beginning in verse 17, and to Adam. He said, because of you, Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. The establishment of the curse there. In pain. Look at the next phrase there in the text of verse 17. And consider the man Enoch and the life in which he's living, in which you share in also in this text of chapter 3. In pain, Enoch. That is here A word to Adam. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. In thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Look at here. The development of the curse and the expression by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. By the way, you're going to die. After all of the sweat, thorns, and thistles, You're going to end up dying. You'll return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. And he died. Standing out is Enoch. If I could just list briefly for you three things here out of the curse within which Enoch found himself. There was number one, pain, thorns, thistles, sweat, death, and decay. Do you have any context that connects you to Enoch's life lived? Have you ever experienced pain? Have you ever experienced thorns? My mother, and I know this is a little bit different perhaps. My mother has rose bushes at her house. And one got me right across the legs. I was putting someone into the vehicle for their car seat. So yes, I can affirm, thorns are real pain. You too? Or are we all together unique, removed? The Word of God cannot speak into such a difficult and complex environment. Do we share with the life lived in Adam and in Enoch? Pain, thorns, thistles, sweat, death, you will die and you will decay. Will we experience this similarity? Consider the life of Enoch is one that you also share. Man has been banished from the garden sanctuary. Do you notice that about your life? You are not living in the Garden of Eden. You too share that burden. In Christ you long for its return. But you do not live there now. And the statistics that I read for you bolster that. I didn't need to read them for you to unite with the thought you're not in the Garden of Eden. Each of you, in your relationships, in your finances, in the burden you bear, and in culture at large, we all know that we're not living any longer in Eden. 
consider after this curse, you see, for the first experience of man's anger and rebellion against God and his hate of his neighbor. Who is it? From the curse, how does it develop? Cain and Abel give us our very first example of culture at large. An anger against God and a murder and hatred of neighbor. Do we experience that now? A rejection of God and a callousness towards neighbor? We are not altogether unique. What unites us to this text is the sin that each of us bears. The burden of our sinfulness is just like the life context after the garden sanctuary. And there is insight here for each of us this morning that is an example for us that we too, like Enoch, can find life, joy, peace, happiness, fullness in the midst of difficulty. Oftentimes, don't we think that if things would just get right around us, we could experience a greater sense of peace? If somehow we could eliminate this relationship, or perhaps if we could acquire this one, if we could get out from underneath this fiscal cliff burden, somehow things are just going to open up and we're all going to, I don't know, something yet to be determined, something that somehow we think past this next crisis is always going to be the land of freedom. But have you recognized so far you've made it through many difficult, challenging waters? And every time we do, by grace, you've found another one. It's not appropriate to always be living in a way that says, if I can just get this here, this thing out of the way, I know what lies behind it is freedom. What lies behind it is joy. What lies behind the severing of this relationship will just make me godly and holy. Or if I could acquire this one, I'll finally love God with all my heart, soul, and mind and love my neighbor like myself. It's this other person that's stopping me from being able to do that. It's this, 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 this brokenness in this relationship. It's the burden of not having enough money. If I just had more. So, I, so I'm here, and I always feel like if I can break this ceiling and hit here, I'll finally be done with all this. And we do. We, we do. We make it. Have any of us experienced the freedom that we assigned to making it? Anyone? No? And is this new? No. Peace that surpasses our common sense and the common sense of those around us is to be found in the midst of difficulty. Joy is found Not in the absence of difficulty, in the midst of the difficulty. And this is what the genealogy of chapter 5 is instructing us in. There is death and decay, thorn and thistle and pain everywhere, except this one man stands out 
of the genealogical information and has simply said that he walked with God. Uniquely, out from all difficulty, because he had it on easy street. Enoch had a better pathway than everybody else. They should have just listened to him. Now he shared in commonality the burden that they also bore of thorn, thistle, pain, and sweat. He wasn't in the garden sanctuary any more than the individuals around him. It was in the presence of difficulty Enoch found life. A simple point of context for you, where you come in contact with this text, is right there. You too can find joy, peace, and life in the midst of death and decay, in the midst of difficulty, sin, and sorrow. The text makes plain how we can do that, each of us, how we can find life in the midst of difficulty. I can't tell you, and, 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 and you don't know, as I said for you, the statistic was, so far, zero on our ability to predict the future. So far, everyone who said doomsday is this one, never mind. I interpreted my math somewhere wrong. I'll tell you next year when it's going to occur the next time. I'll get my math right in between. So, so be ready. Many false prophets will arise and declare that God is returning, I don't know, maybe as early as May. Who knows, maybe Jesus is supposed to come in April Maybe it's going to be that the Mayans, we messed up the math and they're actually going to doomsday us in March. We don't know. Because that's not the intent of the Lord's word. For us to assign dates and interpret history in the moment. That's why so far everybody's been a big goose egg. We're all still here past the Mayan calendar, aren't we? Praise the Lord. And by the way, difficulty sin, sorrow, and sadness also made it past the Mayan calendar to follow us. So do we live like Eeyore? Maybe you don't know who that is. I know because we watch that at home. A character on Winnie the Pooh, by the way. Always down in the dumps. Or can we recognize the authority of the biblical text and realize we can have life. We can have joy. We can have peace. In the midst of sin and sorrow. So what is then the ingredient that unites us to the joy of Christ in the midst of sin and sorrow? Christ. Notice the comment of the text here. If you just look briefly, look at the ingredients by which Enoch found life in the midst of difficulty. You're waiting for a gigantic uh, nugget of truth here, aren't you? You're all waiting me for to disclose the key ingredient that's going to take you from here to here. I, I, I cannot present something as trite as Dr. Phil can, perhaps in this moment. I give you a word of power. It's much more simpler than an eight-step program. It's by faith. Look at the text of Scripture. It's pretty ho-hum. Enoch lived 65 years. He fathered a son. Enoch walked with God. There it is. Word of power for 2013. 
Enoch walked with God. Not because he had no trials. Not because he had no difficulty. That's not here. We have people dying everywhere around him. Experiencing the death and decay. The burden of life that Enoch also bore. But Enoch lived because he walked with God. You see, if, if, if the genealogy, if you're thinking with me briefly for a moment about the genealogical listing of all of the patriarchs, how everybody experienced their very natural course of life, a very natural course of death, and you realize he's just reporting on Enoch, and you say, you say of Enoch, you say, well, he's just reporting this because it's a brute fact. He's just saying Enoch lived. We're, we're, we're stretching it. We're, we're perhaps blowing out of proportions about this man Enoch and his life. You realize immediately by looking at the text, that's not the case. There is no brute recital of a fact that a man named Enoch lived. Otherwise, he would have never instructed us in Enoch's heart that he walked with God. He's not simply reporting facts. This guy lived and died. This guy lived and died. And you're like, well, of course he did. Everybody dies. And by the way, this man lived. Now, back to everybody else that died. And so and so died. And so and so died. And so it's the reason that is a word of instruction for your soul this very moment, looking in an unpredictable future. What can you do? Experience life. How? By walking with God. It isn't just the fact that he lived. It's the reason why he lived in contrast to those around him. The reason why he experienced life in its fullness is because it's causative. It caused him to experience life because he walked with God. Again, back to my crystal ball. I cannot predict what's about to befall you or my own heart if it'll keep pumping to let me finish. We don't know. We don't need to strategize about what might befall us. We don't know. But there's something that our house can be prepared for all challenges that do come. That is, in the moment, walk with your God. Because we do know this. Challenges will come. And I'm giving you a word of strength for 2013 right now, aren't I? You're fired up. Take on 2013. You just heard that sin is following you there. That sorrow awaits you there. So Moses to Joshua, take courage and walk before your God. And in sin and sorrow, experience a deep peace that passes the common sense base of knowledge that you have. This is the reason why Enoch found life. 
I want to pause with you because sometimes uh, th- there's a challenge, isn't there, when we're reading, and some of us are, are, are taking off to begin reading the Old Testament uh, this year. Some of us are getting ready. Like, you know, I ended after eight chapters last year, but 2013 is my year. I'm going to make it through the Bible in a year. This is it. I'm doing it. And you're going to race out the door and you're going to be reading like a whole book of Genesis in one day. And then we'll see you again in 2014. Okay? Pace yourself. That's the word. Pace yourself. So as we're looking to this, we're going to begin to read some incredible stories. One that sticks out to James, the writer of the New Testament. As you're reading James and you get to chapter 5. We're always blown away by this. Because he, he speaks in chapter 5 of a man that you have read about or you're about to read. If you keep going, I think by February or March, you're going to start hitting into Elijah. And you realize this man just called down fire from heaven and consumed his enemies. And, and, and you're about to read character stories and development of real people in real time. But that can be the challenge, right? We start assigning to them this storybook kind of like hobbit lifestyle. Where they're like in this great dynamic story that's taking place. But that's all they are is characters on a screenplay. And in a sense, the humanity is lost. That was them and that was then. This is me and this is now. Detachment. Paul says, no, 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 time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Before you detach, remember, this is written for you as an example for you. It's not unique. And you say, yeah, but I, I look at Elijah and it is unique. He just called down fire and all these great redemptive events in the life of Elijah. And James says, time out. That was awesome, I'll grant it. But he too had a nature like ours. So you find out he's human. He's not God. He too isn't Jesus. He had a nature. Just like us, my dad used to say, when I would really want to be somebody else and want to be like this guy in my class and I just wanted to be like him because he's so much cooler or I want to be this and I want to be that my dad would say he puts his pants on one leg at a time and a few other ones that perhaps aren't as appropriate as here to humanize the situation and that's what James does for us before you get all starry eyed and blown away and think that was awesome He had a nature like ours. He put his pants on, not Elijah exactly, but that idea, one leg at a time. And this is what he did to slap us right back to reality. He prayed. He prayed. No, 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 give me a better word. Give me something to, you know, sprinkle on. No, he's like you. No, he can't be. Yes, he is. What did he do? He prayed. We were joking a couple of days ago, a few of us, you know, sometimes our heart just says, oh boy, that's it. All we can do now is pray. (laughs) We're missing something. That's all he did. He prayed. And he was like you. And he was like me. Enoch, as I conclude, I I won't hold you much longer. Enoch, we can learn from the genealogy 
He was a son. Someone was his father. Have any of you experienced a difficulty in a relationship with a father and son? Are any of you experiencing between as a father to a son? Enoch too was a son. Enoch also was a father. To both sons and daughters. And sometimes we say, oh, daughters are much harder. No, it's the boys that are hard to train. It's the boys that are hard to unite with. Oh, it's the daughters that are... I can't find peace. I can't find joy. I can't find grace. Because of all this hard dynamic in family life. No, 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 no. Enoch too was a father. To both sons and daughters. He was a son. He was a husband. No, Enoch's life is somehow different, removed. He had a nature like ours. He too had a wife. Men, he too had a wife. No, I can't. My my wife is always... No, he too had a wife. He had a family. He needed a job. He needed to go to work. He needed to provide housing. He needed to be on the lookout for danger. He had difficulty, just like you. And yet he found life, not in the absence of it, but in the daily grind of it. He found life by walking with God. No magical voodoo, sweet ointments, oils, or rocks. He walked with God. In 2013, let me challenge you as I am being challenged. I'm under the authority of this text, as are you. And the ingredients are humbly to walk with God for 2013. Walk with God today? How can we do so? Simply by His Word and prayer. In His Word, we are instructed, rebuked, cleansed, and transformed. Men, put yourselves under its authority. Women, put yourselves under its authority. Put your marriage under its authority. Put your finances in the fiscal nightmare under its authority. And as a family and as individuals, pray. Don't say, well, all is lost. All we can do now is pray. Let us pray. And in difficulty, together as a community, together in your small communities of husband, wife, and children, walk with God. Let us pray then, right now. Father, we do ask you to strengthen us as we look upon, perhaps we would have raced through the genealogy and missed its instruction and example written for us. So Lord, give us grace to pause. Let us meditate on what we have found, recognizing Moses' instruction to us. That it isn't in the absence of difficulty that we will find life, but it is in the midst of a very real 
everyday life that we can have joy and peace in Christ. So, Lord, let us grow by grace. Give us the strength to walk with you. As a church, I would ask that we would be a community that would help one another walk with God through godly discipleship one with another. Give us friendships that are united around the person of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us to share that joy with others and invite others to walk with God as we ourselves would walk imperfectly, as indeed so did Enoch imperfectly. But give us the grace by the power of your Spirit. Though we walk imperfectly, Christ has walked perfectly. We are united to Him. So, by grace, we walk with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.